Welcome to the Oil and Gas Council Podcast Investor Series. Hey guys, this is your host Tim Powell from the Oil and Gas Council. Today we are joined by Ken Hirsch, retired co-founder of NGP. During the episode, Ken talks about ESG, geopolitics, supply and demand dynamics, and private equity in a pre, current, and post-COVID-19 world. Let's jump into the episode and hear what Ken has to say. Thanks for, for joining us on the podcast. I hope all is well. Uh, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So uh, for, for the three people listening that don't know you, a very brief uh, walkthrough of your career, starting with NGP uh, to current, and then we'll jump into the current state of affairs and, and all guests. Well, I, you know, I'm one of the more boring people at my reunions um, because I really only have had one job until and into the last couple of years, but the uh, the bulk of my career was spent as a co-founder of at the time we called it Natural Gas Partners in 1988, and then it it grew and grew and grew uh, into NGP Energy Capital Management, uh, one of the larger private equity asset management businesses in the natural resources space with a series of funds all around energy. And uh, at the at the time that I retired, it was just uh, over I think 14 or 15 billion dollars of of cumulative AO, AUM, and it was a really good run. And then uh, just for your listeners, for context, in 2016, uh, I moved to uh, chairman and then senior advisor at NGP, and I became the president and CEO of the George W. Bush Presidential Center here in Dallas, which is former President Bush uh, 43's library museum and institute, and it's a policy institute. So I'm in the nonprofit world on a day-to-day basis, but still keenly supportive of the folks at NGP and and still invested in their work. Fantastic. Well, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on is that unlike many, you have over three decades of investing experience in that you've seen economic cycles, commodity price cycles, black swan events, you, you name it. You've seen it. And so I, I want to jump in. We're, we're recording this. End of April 2020, we're in unprecedented times, COVID-19, the oil price war with Russia and Saudi Arabia. Have, can you make any parallels to other cycles you've seen in your career from an investing perspective? Are, are we in completely uncharted territory or are there some lessons learned from the past that we can reapply here? Um, well, I take bits and pieces of lessons and, and kind of pull them together. I would just characterize that the situation we have in the oil and gas industry really since the unconventional shale revolution, um, the unconventional shale revolution moved the risks in the oil and gas business from below ground to above ground. And, you know, before the revolution, it, the name of the game was to capture reserves. You could find them by actively engaging in exploration, you know, and a real G&G kind of business, or you could acquire, um, which was the business that we settled on at NGP, where you were really trying to acquire and then exploit and enhance what you bought. Once the uh, unconventional shale revolution took hold, um, everything started to change. And now we're, you know, over a decade into it. And the maps, the, the geology is pretty well known. So we now know where the oil and gas rock is. And so the name of the game is liberating the molecules from the rock. But we know where the rock is. So, and we also know with a reasonable certainty that what the production characteristics are going to be. Now we're constantly tweaking and evolving frac design and frac techniques and frac formulas and all that. But generally speaking, the, 
you know, the, it's been a function of the, lap, the length of the lateral in the well, the horizontal lateral in the well, and uh, the quality of the frac. And we're reaching a point now where there are diminishing returns, which means there's, the, there's not going to be a big leapfrog in recoveries. Um, there's going to be some, some nuances in costs, but we generally know what we're going to get. So now the question is, who's going to capture the economic rent for extracting that? And what are the risks associated with that? And so the industry has been dealing with what I call above ground risk. So you have typical supply and demand, but demand is a function of economic growth. It's a function of politics. It's a function of the climate movement. There's a whole host of things that impact demand that are above the ground, obviously. And then the supply is, is responds to that. Geopolitics is a risk that, that lives above the ground. And so to me, that's the biggest dynamic at play here. And then so we ended up with a, with a double punch um, in this cycle. We had a typical um, of a supply response that OPEC was trying to maneuver, which was to pull some barrels off the market in order to stabilize price. Absent the agreement between the Russian consortium and the Saudi-led OPEC consortium, the Saudis said, well, why are we going to be the swing producer and let, every time we cut back, let the American shale producers just dial up production and we lose market share, where's this going to end? So they said, we're sitting on the lowest cost production, let's show them. And so essentially, we had a supply response to say, we need to bring the price down to take barrels off the market that are higher cost barrels. So you had lower cost producers subsidizing higher cost producers. We've seen that three or four other times going all the way back to the mid 80s. But then you had the, the virus. Now the coronavirus, think of it in oil and gas terms, is just a dramatic drop in demand. And there wasn't a substitute found for oil and gas. The, uh, everything that existed in February exists here in April, okay, except the cars are parked and the planes are parked and people are not in their restaurants and they're not in the stores and they're not in their offices. So we've had a dramatic drop in demand. So you, you dial up supply and you dial down demand to a point where the market needs to stabilize. And the numbers, there is no historical precedent for these kinds of numbers. We went from roughly 100 million barrels a day of demand to 65 million barrels a day of demand. So having OPEC in Russia pull 10 million barrels a day off the market isn't going to balance a 30 or 35 million barrel a day market imbalance. The only thing that can change is price. And so the price moved quickly in response. I, I want to jump in on that point. So I was forwarded by a client, a, a little study that Arc Energy Institute put out out of Calgary recently. And they, they talked about, so you, you'd mentioned demand going from 100 million barrels a day to 65 million. The, the, the point of the article was that the, if this continued long-term, that the, uh, you know, all the, the challenges and the issues around ESG and, and the carbon footprint and everything, we still wouldn't meet the standards of the Paris Agreement, even in, even in this world, if COVID-19 ex existed long-term. And so the, I think the punchline of that was there needs to be some other discussions to be had, either to meet carbon footprint reduction uh, discussions or carbon capture. You know, last year, we got to know Howard Newman at Pinebrook really well, and he does a lot of work with the Salk Institute. And they were talking about, you know, using plants to, to grab carbon out of the environment. You know, you get a balance in the carbon cycle versus 
trying to just do it on reduced emissions because it's it's a game we're going to lose is what he was saying the the world economy continues to grow demand continues to grow and we're getting more and more efficient but the net net is that there's there's more emissions out there so i i did kind of just jumping off script here a little bit because i read that article yesterday and there's such a severe demand drop and you had mentioned the above ground risk being a real challenge can, can you talk to that as an investor it's one of the the biggest headwinds you face right now is energy, you know, transition and all, all the talking points around that. That's right. And I think that that's, that's one of the bigger above ground externalities. And when you see financial institutions saying that they, I don't care if oil and gas is something that the market demands, um, we're just not going to finance it. You know, that, or, or if we're an endowment, we're just not going to invest in it. And so you'll see a contraction in the capital availability. Now, Ultimately, supply and demand have to reverse, and what you'll end up with is demand coming back, and the supply won't be be there because the because the investment dollars may not be there, and so that you'll have a big price spot spike, and then higher prices tends to ration demand again. So we'll, you'll end up with with some cyclicality here, but that is a big externality if there are just mandates that you know we don't want to use that hydrocarbon. I don't believe that it, absent a substitute. I do not believe that the world has it in them. And, and before, if we go back to Paris um, and forget, forget the coronavirus for a minute, there wasn't a single country on track to meet their Paris recommendations. Now, none of them, none of them, they're all voluntary anyway with no enforcement. So Paris is largely an empty agreement. Um, it's just kind of a wish list that nobody was going to get to. And importantly, Paris allowed China to increase their CO2 emissions by 50% um, before they declined, which is the, that 50% increase is the equivalent of 100% of the United States. So the Paris Accord allowed the world to emit the amount equal to another United States, which, you know, it was doomed to fail from the get-go. That being said, the climate externality is real. So there's two things that have to happen. And, and I'd look at it as, as simply a balancing equation on both supply and demand. It's the demand, basically, the, that we can restrict the supply of CO2 to the extent we can try. And I think that we should all be more gentle on the planet, and we should all try to conserve, and we should all try to find as clean, of energy, as po clean energy as possible. Um, so I think coal is at a severe disadvantage um, to natural gas and to solar and to wind. Um, but electric vehicles have a long, long way to go before they displace the automobiles and light trucks and airplanes. So and and the maritime industry. So I think that that that's going to be around a long time. But there will be some less CO2 supply. But then we also have to find a way for the Earth to do more. And so the the geoengineering, and that's what Howard was talking about. Some of the geoengineering work um, is quite interesting. And I think people have underestimated man's ability to adapt. And every time that we pro project we're going to run out of food, or we're going to run out of land, or we're going to run out of place. You know, technology comes in and ingenuity takes over and amazing things happen. And, and so I believe that we are uh, going to find and we are working with really interesting geoengineering studies where the oceans can do more work and trees can do more work and we can sequester carbon. It'll take time. It'll take money. But I think that the market will allow that to happen. Um, I, I am not pessimistic. And then the final, the final point is that I would put into my supply and demand equation is adaptation and human beings are amazing creatures and we learn how to adapt and we've we can adapt in very dry climates 
um, that, that have no water and we can grow really interesting things there. And we're able to do that with technology and, and know-how. And so we need to do all of the, we need all of the above to happen. We need to be more gentle on the planet. We need the planet to do more work um, and to help it along to absorb CO2. And then we need to be smart about where we put people in harm's way. No, those are all really good points. And uh, I, I have one last comment to wrap on this, and then we'll get back to the previous discussion. Do you foresee, because you had mentioned, you know, th there's going to be cycles. If, if capital sh shies away from oil and gas, then the supply will go down and demand will grow and then prices will spike back and then capital gets attracted back and it's just a cycle. Post COVID-19, you know, one of my thoughts is there's so much pain in the financial system post this. Does all the scrutiny on ESG become as relevant for companies um, right after this? Let's say by January, 2021, things are relatively back to normal. Do you still see the same exact headwinds to the same tune? I mean, I held a dinner with a bunch of CEOs in Calgary right before all this broke out. I think it was the second week of March. And they were going around the table and they said, we even increased the, the efficiency of our operations through a lot of ESG related activities, but it was economically driven. And, and we're grateful for that. And we're a better company from a carbon footprint perspective. It's all great. But you got to look and the companies that were doing a lot of things and they're the ESG leaders, they were not rewarded by the market during this downturn. They were beaten up as bad or, or worse than others. So right. I, I, that was really telling to me. I, I just wonder, I, I kind of put the question out to everyone at that dinner. I said, does it even matter in this environment where everyone now is just trying to shore up their investments and they'll look to whatever can make returns and that those may be oil and gas companies going forward? Well, there's two different aspects of ESG. One is the, the investor side. Um, there will be enough investors who don't, don't put fossil fuels in a, in a category of, that they need to shy away from. So there, there will be, you know, when, when, the, when the returns get good enough, there will be capital for the industry. The public investors who were very focused on leading with their ESG and therefore eliminating consideration for casino stocks and tobacco stocks and oil and gas stocks, those funds will still be ESG funds and they may still very well not come to the party. Um, but that, that one doesn't concern me as much. Um, I think that the industry is very responsible. For the most part, the oil and gas industry, there have been you know, there's, there hasn't been, knock on wood, you know, major Macondo kind of situation for a long time. Uh, the shale operators have a really, really good record. Um, there's some bad actors that tend to be human error or human intention, but, but structurally and systemically in the business, it's handled really nicely. And, you know, and when things are called out, you know, like methane leaks, the industry has, has seen that and said, you know, those methane leaks are money. You know, we don't, we want to stop the leaks like anyone else and they get after it. You know, there are moments in time where the, where the flaring become is, is an issue because of infrastructure, but that tends to get taken care of as well. So the, I think that right now from an industry perspective, they need to stay alive. They need to earn a return on their capital and they need to manage their business. And ESG is part of the managing of their business, but it's not dominant and it hasn't been some, it's, been, it's been a real externality that is fighting kind of the five to 15 year horizon, not what do I do when I get up in the morning 
and and I do unfortunately think that some of those some of that work is going to have to take a back seat to getting their business back up and running. No, absolutely. And let, let's kind of use that as a transition, just finding a way to survive and 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 get through this downturn. And you had already talked about the dynamics of the industry changing post shale revolution. And we did an episode with Adam Watrous, longtime banker with Scotiabank, now runs his own private equity fund, and he. He spoke in depth about that, and he, he basically said all the technology that enabled shale basins to be unlocked all of a sudden created this unlimited drilling inventory. And so that, in turn, destroyed M&A demand, and it, it really gives trouble to the current private equity investing model or, or the one that's been enjoyed over the last few decades of you go in, um, and, and one that you've touted that had a lot of success for NGP, right? You back a team, you identify assets, you use technical ex- expertise to exploit it, build it up, and then you, you find an exit. And you know, he had mentioned you know, private equity-backed companies were reinvesting a lot of their cash, sometimes more than their cash with leverage, to build up you know, as many proven reserves and as much production as possible, and then PE sponsors were okay with that because they would get made whole on the capital gain of an exit, whether it's right. public or, or an acquisition. And that M&A demand isn't there in the same way as it, as it was. And so there's a lot of trapped capital out there. And because a lot of assets has, have been unveiled as grossly uneconomic at lower prices, they'll, there won't be a bid on them because there's already so much inventory in the healthy companies. And so I'd love to hear your comments on that. Adam's not, you know, he's, Adam's really smart. I've known him for almost 30 years now, and we've lived these cycles together. Um, you mentioned in the, in, the, in the business plan when you did a good job there with a synopsis of, of the business plan, which is to back a team, um, to give them capital, then they use that capital to identify assets that they acquire, and then they, de- and then they start developing it and reinvesting their money. In that equation, you can't be indiscriminate. You have to have a context for when in the time period of that deal, you're going to think about investing that money commitment that you get that, that we would have given a team in the next one to three or four years, and then building that company over kind of years three to year six. You know, that's a window that you can't just blindly look at, at it in a vacuum and say, let's just throw darts and just go do this. I mean, it, and, and if we can just go get any reserves, you'll be fine. There've been a few moments in the last three decades where, where any reserves would have made money, but for the most part, you know, location matters and where you are in the cycle matters. And so when you back a team and that team puts that money to work, they can't do it blindly with, without taking into consideration the price dynamic that we're in, the market dynamic that we're in, et cetera. So, so I don't view... I view this this one now as a challenge, but we've had cha- there's challenges in in frothy markets because people say everybody owns everything. There's no way to buy anything. You're buying it so high, how could you ever sell it? And we made money in those markets. And so you just have to look at those windows, and in those windows you have to say what are the overriding risks and rewards, and that regulates how much capital you put in. It regulates how you value assets. It regulates how you reinvest your dollars. And, and so to me, it's, it's not that different. And we have seen the, these moments before. Now, there's a few differences in that if let's suppose we're in a world now where in the post-shale revolution, where there's so much inventory everywhere that you may not be able just to exit reserves the way you could in a, in a scarcity model where 
you know, having a good bucket of assets, you know, would catch three or four people bidding on it to have a meaningful auction. And that but was that his point, right? That was his point. But, but that doesn't mean that the investment model has changed because when you run the investment model, you ought to run it so that when you bring the reserves on, you produce them till, they, till they're done. And what was your rate of return on that well that you drilled? And if that was competitive and above, well above your cost of capital, taking into consideration risks assumed, then it's a good investment and it doesn't rely upon the sale. And, and so to me, you know, you better be ready to own it. And, and when we ran NGP, we always said, we got to own it. We got to pretend we own it. Now, if we don't own it forever and it shortens up because we found an exit, that's great. But from a rate of return planning standpoint, we ought to run the model out 30 years and make sure we're happy owning it because we may own it. And now that, you know, that may be more the case right now. Now, you know, when you run your 30 year model, nowhere in that model do you say, what if prices go down to $3 or $2 or negative? <laughs> so, you know, so it, it hurts you. But at the end of the day, you're, you at least knew that when you put that dollar in the ground, you weren't relying upon a greater fool to take you out. And so I think that M&A market is clearly dried up. Um, but it doesn't mean that you can't earn returns in investing. Because at the end of the day, you're reinvesting your cash flow to create further cash flow. If you're not creating further cash flow, then you've blown it. So, you know, in reality, it's, it's really just a compounding cash flow model. And clearly price is a big input to that. But so are costs and so are capital expenditure dollars. Yeah, I mean, l- listen, I- I'm speaking to my perspective. My whole career has been in the shale uh, revolution, right? So I've kind of known the shorter life cycles of private equity-backed companies, a lot of flipping, you know, a lot of, of exits. You know, you were, you were bagging teams in the 90s and 2000s when it, it was very much a produce-out model, right, like you had talked. And so I think your perspective is speaking to that. Not, not all companies were in that boat, especially in the 2010 to current time frame. Right. Maybe speak to in the 90s and 2000s, do we go back to that kind of investment model? Do you think the scale yeah. of dollars remains as high as it is now? I mean, that, that's a really good question in terms of scale of dollars. I mean, when, you know, the, the first seven years of existence at NGP, commodity prices were worse next year than they were this year. You know, pick your year. And they were always, they were worse next year. I thought, I thought that's how it worked. I thought that prices always went down. I didn't know there was such a thing as a rising price environment. So when, when you learn to do the business that way, you learn to say, well, look, this business isn't that complicated. It's volume times price minus costs. And that's it. Okay. And if prices are going to go down every year, then let's raise volumes and decrease costs somehow. And if we can't do that, then we're going backwards. So, you know, private equity funds have a hurdle rate give, that they have to pay their investors. So they're keenly aware of the compounding cost of holding, holding their partnerships in place. And so they need to run their models right to say, you know, if we're not compounding our cash flows, then we should be returning our cash flows, our cash, you know. And so that, I, I just don't think it's that complicated. And I think there are these moments in time where the business model kind of gets carried away a little bit and people people got drunk on quick exits where you could buy a, a real big suite of acreage, drill a handful of wells, prove up the concept and then flip it. That clearly is gone. And those big eye popping numbers are gone, but that doesn't mean that the opportunities, the world still needs, you know, when we get back to work, the world is going to need somewhere between 85 and 95 million barrels a day 
of production and the world's going to need the U.S. to produce 90 BCF of natural gas a day. And if that's not there, then capital has to flow or price has to incentivize capital to flow and it'll flow. And it's up to the, it's up to the investor to do it smartly. So going back to the scale of dollars, right? Do, you know, the, the multi-billion dollar funds, do those exist? Do they go back down? And there's a lot of private equity companies. I, I think everyone would agree consolidation needs to happen. You know, how, how that consolidation happens is, is a different discussion. But do you think consolidation on the private equity side needs to happen? There's, there's less funds or just, you know, smaller funds? I, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. I think that there, there were some newcomers that may not have, have the, the, the stamina and the, the long-term track record or perspective, and they may go away. Um, there may be a little bit of a shakeout. There may be some retirements. And, but I, for the most part, I think that, that the market is pretty efficient and capital will flow and sponsors will show up if the opportunities are there. So the, the capital will match the opportunities. Now, what, how many firms or new firms or old firms? I don't, I, I don't know. Your guess sure. is probably as good as mine. What about how, how a portfolio is structured? So do you think it's more likely in, in this world where you're, you're making your returns from cash flow distributions and economies of scale, driving down costs, all those things play in your favor? You think a, a company, a private equity sponsor would prefer to make a, f- a few larger bets and and some some jockeys versus more multiple bets, smaller bets across a larger pool of of, uh, of companies. Probably so. That, the way you asked it, you know, that would make more sense because if you're if if you're going to get to critical mass and own it and be prepared to own it for longer, you know, you better have a a, a big enough fund that can hold in there and keep the keep the company get the company to the scale it needs. But, and there, but there are also smaller firms that have been adept at bringing in partners and cultivating larger portfolio companies. So it just depends on strategy. I hate, to, I hate to evade the question, but I think that for the most part though, private equity backed companies in this next part of the cycle may need to be prepared to own it longer and to get it to a point where it's achieved its own scale. Yeah, and one question I had on that, I think you've kind of answered it, but we'll just touch on it very briefly. If you're going to have longer holding periods and you're not going to, you know, say it's a 10 to 12 year cycle on an individual management team, do you as a private equity sponsor need to raise different types of LP capital or it's just you're running your models to, to play out that way and, you know, the types of assets you get and the operating plan and all that stuff just reflects that world. Yeah, I, I don't think you need to change your capital structure or your investor type. It's just the way you manage the money. And then on the back of that question, what about where the money comes from? Do you think, and you kind of talked about shale, post-shale revolution, above ground risks are the, the name of the game, not below ground. You know, are there, is there money around the world that investing in into us oil and gas it just makes more sense and uh, there's more of an appetite and maybe you know the the environmental challenges that there's more headwinds there for canadian and u.s investors and there's there's less concern about that other where in other places and security and things of that nature are more of a concern so parking it in the u.s where you might less likely to have wars and and those types of things and do you do you see a shift in where the capital is raised 
absolutely. That's one of the dynamics of, of capital markets is that capital can flow across borders and not only pick industries, but it can pick locales. And I think the rule of law is, is an above ground risk that people who have invested in Mexico, you know, probably realized that the opening up of Mexico wasn't all it was cracked up to be. You know, just like several decades before that, the opening up of Venezuela wasn't all it's cracked up to be. And decades before that, the opening up of Saudi Arabia wasn't what it's cracked up to be. And I mean, I just think that the, the ebbs and flows of the world are something that the oil and gas industry uh, has had to live with. And, you know, we're entering, a, we're entering a cycle, a geopolitical cycle, where the dictators on this planet are having their moment in the sun. And that's very scary for capital markets. And so when you see, um, when you see people, you see the strong men around the world consolidating power, if you are a capitalist, that's not a great signal. And so you will think twice before going into those countries. And so I think that that's, that's, one, of the, that's one of the positive things that will come out of this from a US oil and gas perspective. So I, you know, that, that's what makes it so exciting. Um, and that's one thing that you know, at NGP, we really instilled a global perspective, even though we were you know, investing for the most part locally. And that was one of the secrets to our success, I think, is that we tried to understand and look around the corner a little bit as to what's happening and try to anticipate you know, some of the geopolitical aspects that are now coming to fore. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the questions is, you know, what, what are the most attractive assets going forward that you can invest in? And I think the price of oil dictates that to a certain extent, I think shale is interesting because you can dial it up and down. And so what's been proven in, in, re, in the recent months is, you know, certain shale, parts of the shale basins are, are only economic plus 50 bucks a barrel. But if we get back to a 60, 70, $80 per barrel environment, shale wells can be turned on and, you know, that flush production, you can really flood supply very quickly. Other types of projects around the globe don't have that capacity. So that's an interesting dynamic, you know, but, but others think it is conventional, the new unconventional, you hear all these taglines, right? Uh, is it the, the offshore projects? You know, if you're an Exxon or someone who, who looks multiple decades down the road, is it better to put your capital into these longer life projects that produce big volumes, but you got to put the money in up front? I mean, do you see a shift in what types of assets are attractive or competitive going forward? Or do you think shale is still a very, very attractive and competitive option? Um, we just need to be a little bit more disciplined because there are going to be some, some major losers on the back of this. Yeah, I mean, you know, shale is a volume game. And as you are right to point out, that price matters. It, you can't just be indiscriminate and say, let's bring on you know, any kind of volumes. No, I think there's room in the world for both the long cycle projects uh, as well as the short cycle projects. And the, the short cycle projects to, for the exact dynamic you just mentioned have squeezed out some of the super high cost, you know, super long cycle stuff as it should have. Uh, because you know, if, you're, if, you can, if you can deploy a billion dollars by drilling a bunch of shale wells, and if you were a major oil company, you know, 10 years ago, the oil major oil companies weren't invested in the shales. And so they really only could to invest, to put a billion dollars to work, they were in the deep water projects. And those had really long cycles. And they had, you know, there were two or three commodity price cycles between the time they, they had the idea for the exploration well, and the time they got the production platform on. You know, there were oil price probably cycled two or three times sometimes. 
So I think that, that now they have something else to compare it to. And so for those companies, those long dated big projects have to compete favorably with a portfolio of shale production. But it doesn't mean that that's the only way to go, especially the national oil companies. So I, I think that the world is gonna have a blend of, of all. Um, but, but back to my comment on rule of law, I think the rule of law and, the, and changing regimes, when people see that if they're investing tens of billions of dollars you know, as an industry into a sector in a, in a country, and they wanna have a 30 year or 40 year horizon, it's one thing to say there'll be two or three different oil price cycles over that time period, but what about political cycles where your assets may be taken from you? You know, those are very different, those are very different things to put in the equation. But I, I still think that whether it be the North Sea, whether it be West Africa, whether it be the Gulf of Mexico, whether it be some parts of Southeast Asia, I think there's some really, really interesting, big projects that will bring properties, bring production on for long periods of time that will still be pursued. You know, it's, you bring up an interesting point on the risk of your assets being taken, right? You see that in Argentina, Venezuela. What, what's interesting, so from my seat, we're, we're working with executives all throughout the year, and there's always, you know, one of my regions I overlook is Latin America. So a lot of folks will say, let me know of any private equity shops that are looking in Latin America. We built and sold three companies. We're looking for some, some equity commitments to launch a new idea in Colombia, let's say. And the response pretty across the board, there, there's a few exceptions, but for the most part, it was, Tim, why, why would we take on all of the extra risks that don't exist in the U.S. for similar returns and what we can get in the Permian? Sorry, we're only looking at the Permian. Now, recently, because um, we have a big team in Asia, there's a lot of assets there. The M&A market's been dead. And there's all of a sudden, we've started to get a lot of inbounds and some interest in private equity, maybe looking outside the U.S. Is that a short-term knee-jerk reaction, or do you think there's some validity there? I think there's some validity. I think the, the flaw in, in the logic that you just read back to me was that why would I go to Latin America or Colombia for take on all this other risk for lower returns? The answer is you wouldn't, but you would for higher returns. <laughs> so, you know, that just means the, the assets have to be repriced. You know, it doesn't mean that the oil and gas doesn't exist anymore. It's just that the assets need to be repriced. And if you are doing business in countries where you don't feel good long-term, then you might want payout a heck of a lot faster. And so that to me is, that's where price becomes, you know, one of the governors on the engine. And so it doesn't mean that it's not any less desirable if the hydrocarbons are there and they're in a good market area and you can get them to market and there's good downstream capabilities around it, those hydrocarbons will find a way to get to market. The question is, what's the clearing price given the risk? And so it's the, it's, so the risk, you know, commodity prices are one things that fluctuate, but risks fluctuate and risks, broadly speaking, you know, price is one risk, um, above ground externalities are another risk, you know, tax regimes and geo, geopolitics and local politics, that's a risk. So to me, the basket of risk is what determines the proper return that you need to seek. And that's where the capital will flow. And if, and if you can't transact because people won't take on those risks and therefore you have to price it lower and lower and the seller will say, I'm not selling at that price, then you won't, then you won't transact. And there'll be no M&A market because somebody will say, I'll just hold it. Why would I sell it for one times cash flow? I'll just hold it. And so then, then that's what causes things to freeze up. Let's kind of in, in closing here, Ken, what are your thoughts and uh, your opinion, right? No one has a, a crystal ball, but the, the, there's going to be some resetting of the market. I think 
we're not going to go back to the way things were. There are going to be some new normals. So whenever COVID-19 goes away, you know, the oil and gas industry resets, what do you think that looks like? And, and what do you think is, is the playbook going forward? I mean, you could touch on consolidation, restructuring, bankruptcy, kind of your closing comments and thoughts in summary. Well, my closing comments, um, I'll repeat what I said earlier, is that, is that the demand drop did not happen because a substitute was found. Demand, the demand was dropped because we had a global public health crisis. And I don't know if that'll take one year or two years or three years to kind of return to a level of normal, but it'll happen. People after 9-11, there was a big drop in demand and there was a big drop in commodity prices. And everybody said that people aren't gonna get on an airplane anymore. Look at the hassles they have to go through. And it took a while, but the world adjusted and human beings are incredibly adaptable. How long did that take, just for reference? It took about three years. You know, and it was a big, it was a big jump. But you also saw a pickup in driving. You know, people, they weren't traveling as much. They weren't taking as much vacations on planes, but they were driving more. So you saw a counter, you saw a counterbalance. Um, but, but I think we got back onto airplanes. And, and I think what people are missing is the world's population is going from 7 billion to 9 billion. And that's happening, you know, over the next 20 years or so. And the question is, there's going to be more mouths to feed and there's going to be more aggregate demand. Now, there will, there will be a point where we will look back and we will say, you know, isn't it amazing that just like 9-11 caused us to do different procedures getting on and off airplanes, you know, the COVID crisis may cause us different behaviors. But at the end of the day, human beings are social creatures, we're, in, we're industrious creatures, and we will consume hydrocarbons. We will have energy demand. So I believe we will come back to the trajectory that we were on before, and it'll take, you know, two to three years um, to get us back on that path. And, and so with that, the world needs the market to balance. And so it'll be interesting to watch the industry respond because what happens when the industry is being dismantled, and I don't want to downplay what's happening right now. It is awful um, because what is happening to oil and gas in the United States is exactly what's happened into, into small mom and pop retail with the Amazon experience. And so the industry is being dismantled well, unlike a small little mom and pop retail store, the world could deal without it because those products can be supplied more efficiently and cheaper by Walmart and Amazon. But in oil and gas, they're in a substitute. And when that industry gets dismantled, those people go get other jobs or they leave town and those wells get capped and it, it does not turn back on like a light switch. And so we're going to need the talent back and we're going to need the capital back. And so the industry is going to have to respond. The regulators are going to have to respond and um, price will have to respond. When that happens is anybody's guess. Um, But, you know, I think the folks at NGP are exceedingly well managed and understand that these cycles, we've lived those cycles over three decades. And I think we're going to see it again. So I, I you know, so I'm optimistic as much as this is a painful period, I'm optimistic that it will be a reminder that the markets work and the markets actually are what we need to make it work and, uh, and that the industry will, will thrive again. If you look at the futures market, it is interesting that the market rebound, if you look at the futures market even today, it rebounds back into the 30s relatively quickly. And $30 is not a fancy price for oil and gas. Um, and people aren't making any money there. But in 2014, when Saudi Arabia decided to dial up production in order to try to put us out of business, because the consultants were all saying that 
$80 is the price where shale breaks even. And OPEC did battle with the American oil, independent oil and gas entrepreneurs and lost. And the U.S. industry took costs out of its cost structure to where it could make a little bit of money down around $30 or $40. Now, not very much to be sustained, but at least it could survive. And ultimately, Saudi Arabia had to say, that's it. We need to pull barrels off the market and get the price back up, which they did. And so I think that we're going to see that again. I really do. Yeah, I mean, the conversations I've had is that the lifting costs for Saudi Arabia and Russia aren't as low as, as projected. And their ability to, to go through this, this type of environment, it's not as easy as, as the market gives them credit. And there's significant pain. And No question. If you, if you look at the budgets across OPEC, remember, a barrel of oil in OPEC Think about the, the operating costs as including the schools and the roads and whatever social payments need to be made. I mean, that is the equivalent of LOE for Saudi Arabia and other OPEC yeah. countries. And they have restless populations that they don't pay it. And so it's a real cost. And so this is not a sustainable condition for anybody. And so we know that. And so the big, the big question will be, if you tell me where demand will settle, I can tell you roughly where the price might be. Is it going to be back at 85 million barrels a day of demand? Is it going to be 88? Is it going to be 90? Is it going to be 95? You know, when's it going to get back to 100? You know, that's really the, the point at which you can then look around the world and say, okay, which production can come on if, A, if those are needed, because of, if demand is only 90 million barrels, then somebody who is producing 10 million barrels a day, you know, has to go offline. Um, there has to be 10 million barrels that go offline relative to February. So that's the kind of math that the market will be sorting out. I don't think that the equations are that different than the investment business has seen in the past. It's just a different, different set of factors. Gotcha. Ken, thank you for doing this. And it was great to, to catch up with you again after many years. Um, you know, best of luck uh, with you and your family going forward. I think we should all enjoy this this time at home uniquely, right? We're always traveling and everything. And I know you're an avid baseball fan, so hopefully we can get the Texas Rangers back and sports and entertainment. Hopefully the world resumes uh, and gets back to normal soon. Uh, yeah, and I, I am optimistic. I think the public health officials responded um, properly by being cautious. Uh, we now have the data. We can now reopen gradually. But this country has seen a government response. It has seen... A, a private response. It has seen a philanthropic response that gives me a lot of a lot of encouragement that you know this country is a public-private partnership, and there are more stories of good people doing really good things to help their neighbor and to help each other get through this. It is a tragedy. We will find the answers. I'm positive we will find the answers. But around it, I want everybody to observe just how gracious and how how big-hearted. America is. And that, I think, is coming, coming out in droves. I'm really proud to, I'm really proud of our country. No, great, great closing comments. And I know that's a reflection of, of you and your family as well. I'm, I'm sure you've been a big part of a, a lot of those types of behaviors, especially on the philanthropic side. So Ken, thank you so much, sir. You have a, a wonderful evening and we'll catch up soon. Thank you. Good luck to everybody. Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed. The Oil and Gas Council represents the largest network of senior oil and gas executives and investors in the world. Throughout the year, we leverage our relationships and industry knowledge to facilitate intros on behalf of our members in order to help them place capital, 
buy and sell deals, and form new partnerships. If you're interested in learning more about how our team can help fuel your business development efforts, then please email me at tim.powell, that's P-A-W-U-L, at oilcouncil.com. Also, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and be sure to share the episodes with anyone in your network that you think would enjoy. Thanks, and see you next time.